0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at PrattWhitney.com. And by DoHop. DoHop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at DoHop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney wishing everyone a most happy Thanksgiving. To those traveling, I hope you get to grandma's safely, on time, and with your luggage. Happy Turkey Day to you, Ben Baldanza. I'm very thankful for you.
1: Happy Thanksgiving, Scott. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I hope you don't return from family gatherings with more baggage than you arrived with, if you know what I mean. (laughs) One person I'm thankful for is Rick Cotton, the executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. He's led an incredible rebuilding of three of our most important airports. And we'll talk to him later in the show. The perfect recipe for a delicious Thanksgiving.
0: I'm looking forward to a great conversation with Rick. He's done an amazing job, often behind the scenes. And over the years, I've always enjoyed talking with him. used to be tough for Rick when I was writing about how awful LaGuardia, Newark, and Kennedy airports were. Now there's a lot to celebrate, especially at LaGuardia, and Rick has a lot to be proud of. Should be a very interesting discussion. Another thing to be thankful for, Ben, is that Amsterdam reversed itself and said it wasn't going to strip airlines of slots this coming summer. We talked about how JetBlue slots were taken away. Turns out international treaties and fairness actually matter. This is one case where the pressure worked quickly, so book your flights on JetBlue to Amsterdam this summer without fear of cancellation, I think. And I'm thankful for an aviation culture here in the U.S. where we constantly review and identify problems and strive for improvement in aviation safety safety doesn't just happen naturally. You have to work at it continuously. You have to stay vigilant and correct problems before they kill people. And I think that's what's happening. The FAA issued a fascinating report this past week, the result of the safety review launched earlier this year after a series of near misses. We're going to talk about what it found. And before the electrons were dry on that report, FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker announced some steps toward correcting problems. We're going to talk about that, too. And one other thing I'm thankful for, Ben, In-N-Out Burger. Seriously. So is Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. In the scoop of the week, a Bloomberg reporter stopped at an In-N-Out Burger on the way to the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, and there was Secretary Yellen ordering a cheeseburger with fries and onions. She was on her way to the San Francisco airport to greet China's leader, Xi Jinping. There's something really delicious about this story, besides the cheeseburger, and I just had to share it. I hope Secretary Yellen wasn't just checking cheeseburger prices to measure inflation. Who amongst us hadn't had a craving for in and out before a tense meeting with world leaders?
1: That's so funny. It's great to know that our leaders will eat such good food. (laughs) I'm excited about the FAA's report because they did find interesting things, and that means we can correct them. And Amsterdam reversing just makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not saying that because of my role with JetBlue, but Amsterdam historically has been a great city to visit, but also a great connecting place. And when they reduce capacity so people can't connect there, who gets hurt? Amsterdam does. Workers get fired, fewer people eat at restaurants, and more. And yet people still connect over Frankfurt, Paris, London, Stockholm, Istanbul, or more. So I think Amsterdam had a great intent, but was thinking too parochially about that. So everyone should go to Amsterdam this summer and show them they made a great decision. (laughs) You know, one story I wanted to note before we get to the FAA safety discussion is that a woman who forced an American Airlines flight to divert last year was sentenced to three months in prison and ordered to pay American the cost of the diversion, which was $38,952. I know none of our listeners would ever disrupt a flight, but I think it's right that people should have to pay for the cost of a diversion if it's not a life or death health issue. And I hope this is a lesson to many in the flying public.
0: I hope so, too. Once we got past the mask issues, uh, things seem to have calmed down a bit in airplane cabins, at least I hope. But we still hear about ugly incidents and people being arrested, and there are consequences to it. So I hope it acts as some kind of deterrent. Um, Yes, it's very expensive, not just uh, three months in prison, um, but also the cost of the diversion. Well, Ben, the safety review that launched last spring after a series of close calls found a lot of what we already know, but the report itself is still quite eye-opening. The root causes, which we talked about before, were confirmed—short staffing, outdated technology, and chronic underfunding. The report is more than 50 pages long, and it's quite sobering. It didn't say American airspace was unsafe, but it did say the current situation is unsustainable. The six-person blue-ribbon panel included several aviation leaders familiar to listeners— It was led by former FAA Administrator Michael Huerta, and it included our friend David Grizzle, a former FAA Chief Operating Officer, and Robert Sumwalt, the former chair of the NTSB, who's been on the show. The panel said the FAA's problems are eroding safety protections. Right now, safety has been preserved at the expense of efficiency, delaying flights, and slashing schedules. The report called for changes in congressional funding, and made 24 specific recommendations. It said all this was urgent. One example of the problems identified, the FAA doesn't have a good system to track air traffic controller training or proficiency. One of the close calls involved a controller who was, quote, delinquent in completing over 24 training items, quote. They didn't say which incident that was. Another problem, the FAA's Air Traffic Control Training Academy is a true bottleneck, failing to produce enough candidates. Here's one piece of information I found shocking. Quote, when retirements and other attrition is accounted for, the FAA's current hiring plan produces a negligible improvement over today's understaffed levels, resulting in a net increase of fewer than 200 air traffic controllers By 2032, end of quote. We are critically understaffed. The number of controllers has fallen 10% over the past decade. There were 11,753 certified professional controllers in September 2012 and only 10,578 in September 2022. And over the next decade or so, the current plan gives us only 200 more controllers than we have now. Every airline and every traveler should be screaming to congressional representatives that this needs to be fixed.
1: Now, Scott, if you told me this was happening with a massive increase in technology that would allow a single controller to handle many more flights, I might buy it. But I don't see that either.
0: No, not at all. On top of the staffing shortage, Ben, aging equipment and facilities pose risks. It's just the opposite of what you said. The report said the FAA struggles to find parts for ground-based safety systems at airports, for example, and replacement antennas are no longer available for beacons used to track aircraft. This past week, Paul Rinaldi, the former president of NATCA, the Air Traffic Controllers Union, said some FAA systems still use floppy disks for software updates. A quote from the report, The FAA continues to be asked to do more with less in an already strained system, and the series of serious incidents in early 2023 eliminate significant challenges to the provision and safety oversight of air traffic services. These challenges in the areas of process integrity, staffing, and facilities, equipment, and technology all have ties to inadequate and inconsistent funding. FAA Administrator Michael Whitaker announced some immediate actions in response. The agency will provide additional support to colleges and universities in something called the Air Traffic Collegiate Training Initiative. The goal will be to get that program to where graduates can begin on-the-job training at an air traffic facility. Right now, graduates have to go through the FAA Air Traffic Controller Academy prior to being assigned to a facility. So you go to Ember Riddle or some other university, you you learn air traffic control, you get your degree, you check out uh, and all that, and then you still have to go to the FAA Training Academy. Um, I'm glad they're trying to fix that system. The FAA also announced a year-round hiring track for experienced controllers from the military and private industry. It said it's going to work to keep filling every seat at the FAA Academy and increase classroom capacity beyond current limits. The FAA will expand the use of advanced training across the country. It will finish deploying tower simulator systems in 95 facilities by December 2025, Good luck, the FAA will deploy the first simulator system in Austin in January next year. I'm not sure they can get that done in 11 months, but it's also kind of shocking that they don't even have a a simulator system for towers. Ben, I hope the response is just the beginning, because obviously those tweaks won't save the day. The report does an excellent job of finding structural problems and making recommendations, But I still think we need a Manhattan Project of smart people to not only tell us what we need to do, but also tell us how to do it. It's the next step after this panel's work. Find the solutions and give us the answers that will win the war. We still have the risk here of just more of the same, and once again, naively expecting a different outcome, only to be left without significant change. Failing to take bold action to fix a serious economic infrastructure and safety priority will only leave us years from now saying, wow, the FAA is short-staffed, the technology stinks, and the funding is inadequate, and safety is at risk. We better do something.
1: You know, I'm encouraged with Secretary Whitaker's response to this report. It looks to me like the committee did a great job, but that job means a lot of work ahead. What would be great next from Secretary Whitaker is to quantify what these changes will do and how we can change that 200 number to a number it needs to look like to ensure we can be safe with all these planes in the air.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I think his biggest challenge is going to be Congress. Um, We we have to change the funding. We have to change how the FAA is operated. Um, This should be a bipartisan issue. I don't understand why Republicans and Democrats who all fly can't say, you know what, we need to be safe. We need a better system. We can't have a situation where Canada and the UK and Australia and New Zealand and all kinds of different countries have better technology than we have. We have more airplanes in the air. We're the country that needs the best technology and we've got among the developed nations we've got among the worst so it it just seems like this is something that everybody should rally around and and fix but i fear that you know bold plans will be dead on arrival in in congress that uh, people are are very protective of they want to control the funding they want to control the regulations they want they want to have a say in this and that and the other thing and that's what's gotten us into this mess. It's going to take bold leadership to, to get people to step up and say, okay, we're going to change.
1: And Scott, I care about the environment, but I'm worried that there are people who care about the environment at any cost and may like the fact that we're delayed on this because it will reduce the number of flights over time. I certainly hope that's not driving the agenda.
0: Yeah, I hope not. I think that would, that would kind of be, I don't know, backwards. Uh, to, to me, all the delays make it worse for the environment, right? A plane sitting there idling is still burning fuel, a flight that gets rerouted in eight different ways, or or is flying circles in the sky because you can't because landings have been slowed, um, that's all bad for the environment. So I think there are you could you could sell the technology advancements as environmental improvements.
1: That may be the key to get it through Congress.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business At prattwhitney.com.
1: And we want to thank DoHop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. DoHop is a travel technology provider, enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, getting lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, our works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination, visit doab.com. That's d o h o b dot com.
0: Now let's bring in this week's guest. We are thrilled to have Rick Cotton with us. Rick Cotton became executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey in August 2017. He has overseen the massive rebuilding program at New York's three major airports, an almost $30 billion redevelopment that is changing some of the worst airports in the country to, believe it or not, some of the best. Prior to joining the Port Authority, Rick served as New York State's special counselor to the governor for interagency initiatives. That involved the state's major infrastructure projects, such as Penn Station and the Second Avenue subway project. Simple stuff. Previously, he spent 25 years at NBC Universal, where he held several positions, including 20 years as EVP and general counsel, and four years in London as president and managing director of CNBC Europe. Rick received a bachelor's degree from Harvard and a JD from Yale Law School, and served as a law clerk to Justice William Brennan on the U.S. Supreme Court. Rick, we often start by asking people how they got into this crazy industry. You've done so much in your career, and none of it sort of screams airports. Um, You came to the Port Authority from relatively simple projects like fixing the New York City subway. How did you get involved in running airports?
2: Well, sometimes I call myself the accidental executive director of the Port Authority. I got into the, uh, one might say, the infrastructure uh, and transportation infrastructure business business writ large, at the point at which I was leaving NBC, I've always had a large interest in public service. Uh, in fact, for the first 10 years after law school, I had a series of either government or uh, public interest organization jobs. And I, on leaving NBC, I looked around for uh, potential government jobs. It happened to be the moment at which uh, Governor Cuomo was uh, just entering his second term. And I uh, I had gotten to know him when I at NBC and wound up going to work in the governor's office. And to some extent, by the luck of the draw, infrastructure projects were at the top of the agenda at that moment. And you mentioned some of them. I started out working on projects like the Tappan Zee bridge, rebuild, the uh, the final stage of the Second Avenue subway, and the key moment in negotiating uh, the arrangements so that the Moynihan train hall project could get uh, get going. And one of the major projects at that moment was the very early uh, stages of LaGuardia and uh, Dean Kennedy. So I wound up with that as part of my portfolio, and uh, it at a certain point in time, uh, made sense from the governor's point of view for him to decide uh, to uh, name me as executive director of the Port
1: Authority. Well, that's so impressive. A few years before he came to this role, then Vice President Joe Biden referred to LaGuardia as something You'd find in a third world country, what did you think about that when Governor Cuomo asked you to run the Port Authority?
2: Well, then Vice President Biden was right. <laughs> LaGuardia was probably the worst airport in the in the country. The fact is that all three of the Port Authority airports, ranked at the bottom of virtually every passenger survey of airport passengers that was taken. So the task was to step up. Uh, that was an embarrassment uh, to the region. It was an embarrassment to uh, the both states uh, to have the airports, the gateways to our region, be in such disrepair. They were outdated. They were too small. They were backward in terms of technology. And the state the physical state was uh, embarrassing. So Vice President Biden hit the nail on the head, which was these were totally unacceptable conditions. And the challenge was uh, to go, frankly, from worst to best. And that was the challenge uh, that uh, was part of uh, the Port Authority's to-do list
0: Rick, I've mentioned this to you before, I think, but uh, I got to know Bill Dakota, the longtime airports director for the Port Authority, who who died much too soon in 2009 at age 52. At lunch one time, Bill said he had a plan to rebuild LaGuardia while continuing to operate on that same small, tiny patch of of land. And I have to say, I, I laughed and said, there's no way you can do that. LaGuardia was already gridlocked and It's hard to see how that could ever happen. But that's exactly what you did. It was tear down a little, build a little, move to the next, Um, did it relatively quickly. Um, Did you ever question the wisdom of, of the plan, rebuilding while still operating on the same small space?
2: I don't think there was really a choice. The fact is that the three port authority airports At uh, that point in time, we're handling on the order of 140 million passengers a year. Travel to and from the region was robust. Actually shutting down an airport that handled 30 million passengers a year and actually feeling as if one was discharging the responsibility uh, that has been given to the Port Authority really wasn't realistic. To your point, uh, I'm fond of pointing out that all of LaGuardia would fit within Central Park with 180 acres to spare. Huh. It, it is a postage stamp. So the uh, the approach had to be the one that you reflected, which is it was like hopscotch, it was a, a checkerboard. You couldn't tear down any capacity whatsoever until you had built new capacity. So that was how the project unfolded. And remember that our approach was this was not a renovation, this was not a modernization, this was a tear down. We tore down every single passenger facility at LaGuardia Airport, with the exception of the landmark Marine Air Terminal, which we weren't allowed to touch, and built new, and not only built new facilities, but tore up the old roadway network and completely redesigned it and built new. And uh, we learned a lot in that challenge. The fact is everyone expected that given all the construction, usage of the airport would go down. It didn't. It did exactly the reverse virtually every year pre-COVID. While we were in the midst of of the most intense construction, passenger volume at the airport went up. So we learned a lot. We did things that airports had never done before in terms of setting up a special... Airport operations center with uh, cameras on every inch of the roadway network, police deployed, land landside managers deployed, and having established routines in terms of if traffic built up one place, how did you manage it? Uh, and that's actually become our standard for operating the landside of of the airport now with the operations center with intense moment-to-moment control to respond to traffic problems. So, it was a challenge, but I'd say the agency responded to it.
1: It's an amazing piece of engineering, project planning, and more. What you did should be a model for everyone. Well, it's
2: nice of you to say, Ben. We've certainly made uh, that learning experience uh, a model for how we run our three major airports.
1: Well, that's great. So, in all that, what was the hardest part about it? There had to be lots of surprises and probably some setbacks along the way. Well,
2: certainly operating the airport while the construction was underway, certainly near the top of that list. But there are so many uh, satisfying design aspects of the uh, of bringing uh, an entirely new uh, design to the table in many in many respects. For example, the new terminal structures were moved 600 feet closer to the expressway that runs in front of the airport, the Grand C- Central Parkway. Uh, that 600 feet was recaptured uh, for use on the air side. Uh, so that the taxiways were dramatically expanded. You had two different terminal projects. They used uh, the uh, uh, Terminal B used island concourses to very good effect. Uh, Delta used pier concourses, but they shared one thing, which is a commitment to ensure that an airplane always had two ways to get into or out of the gate. So on uh, on the Delta side, those are dual taxiways. On the Uh, Terminal B side, those are island concourses with uh, so-called skyways, as we like to refer to them, where passengers walk over active taxiways to get to the island uh, where the concourse and the gates are. But again, what that means is that a plane can come from either direction to get to its gate, and obviously what that's intended to do is avoid the pilot coming on and saying there's an aircraft in the taxiway blocking access the gate, But the whole design challenge, which is how did you make the airport not merely uh, improve the functionality critical uh, in terms of what people expect at an airport, but uh, state-of-the-art check-in technology, state-of-the-art security technology, the experience in the airport, the passenger experience really elevated so that the question of uh, iconic local concessions mixed in with with national concessions, public art installations, which we're now trying to make a signature of Port Authority Airport so that it registers on people as they go through the airport. Hey, this is interesting. I want to stop. I want to look at either a fountain or I want to look at, a, at an art piece. And the net result being that the airport does become uh, a positive uh, and indeed hopefully take some of the anxiety and, and tension out of traveling, which can be, as you know, a very pressured experience. And I have to point out uh, the fact that in the latest uh, Wall Street Journal passage, <laughs> there are people who are quoted saying, I go I go to LaGuardia early so that I can spend more time in the airport. That was not true of the old LaGuardia.
0: No, it wasn't, and it and it really is spectacular. Uh, I know we, uh, I, when I was at the journal, I, I even did a story about the the bathrooms because the the bathrooms were so disgusting at the old LaGuardia, and uh, and that was a priority. Uh, you made them, you know, boutique hotel uh, bathrooms, um, quite nice for any airport or any hotel for that matter.
2: I have to tell you that when I first came to the Port Authority, I made it a point of calling general managers of airports that were very highly rated. And almost to a person, they said at the top of their list was paying attention to the bathrooms. It makes a big difference in terms of travel experience.
0: Yeah, it does. And so LaGuardia is beautiful. It's functional. It's loved by travelers. I still hear from people who are just shocked when they their first time there. Um, but they they really do love it. And congratulations on the Wall Street Journal rankings. When, when I was doing that, I, I used to I used to have to call you when you were on the bottom and, and say, why are you on the bottom? Duh. Um, and and you always said it's going to get better. And and it certainly did. So what are you most proud of with the finished product?
2: Well, I would actually say the total package. A lot of thought went into every aspect of uh, design and the uh, construction. Uh, Remember, we had two private partners. I mean, I think you have to start with the fact that two public-private partnerships were key building blocks. Delta uh, at Terminal C and LaGuardia Gateway Partners at Terminal B. And the working partnership was really, really important. These, in terms of bringing capital Uh, to the table. The private partner brings 100% of the uh, capital to build the terminal. Port Authority takes on the infrastructure, rebuilding the roadways, the garages, the electrical substations. But when you look at the big picture, really three quarters of the construction capital comes from the private sector. So what we've done is to leverage Port Authority capital which is under strain and under stress on almost a three or four to one ratio with private financing. So one can afford major capital investment. The total LaGuardia project was $8 billion. And so one has the ability to do designs and, and to build structures, which enable you to provide uh, really a curb to gate experience which has all of the various aspects we've been talking about. And seeing the finished product come into actual physical being from the technology, the convenience, and the art, et cetera, it's really that package. And to see the kind of reactions it gets from, uh, from passengers uh, is, is really very rewarding.
1: Rick, I'm curious in what a new LaGuardia could mean for air service to New York. Do you see it taking greater passenger share or growing faster? Does it further isolate an airport like Stewart?
2: Well, that's an excellent question. I, uh, remembering that our ambition is, uh, is across all of the Port Authority airports, Certainly what gets the lion's share of the attention, because that's the lion's share of the passengers, are not just LaGuardia, but uh, JFK and Newark. And hopefully people have had experience with a new Terminal A at Newark, which is uh, every bit as high quality and functional as LaGuardia. And we're in the midst of a $19 billion uh, rebuild of Kennedy with the same high uh, high ambitions Stewart is obviously in a very different category. We really want to see Stewart thrive. We've take, taken multiple runs at it. We will continue uh, to do so. It, it is well suited uh, as a uh, as a regional airport. It's well suited to serve the Hudson Valley. It's well suited to serve the the city, particularly for airlines which are targeting uh, budget, low cost service. And uh, we've just announced a new. Uh, some new flights from Stewart, um, but we're, we're we're searching for the uh, the magic ingredient, and we put a lot of time and effort, and we will continue to do so.
0: So, speaking of Kennedy and Newark, where where do things stand? You, you mentioned completing Terminal A at, at Newark. How far along is the Kennedy project, and what else is is to come at Newark?
2: Well, to take them one at a time, Kennedy is fully underway. There are uh, two, two projects, uh, an expansion uh, and refurbishment of Terminal 4, which is primarily Delta, but although the operator is the Schiphol Airport Group, which has a subsidiary JFK IAT. So uh, that uh, the early stage of that project is done in terms of the expansion and we're in discussions in terms of making further investments there. Terminal uh, eight uh, completed $400 million investment, British Air having moved over uh, to join American and Terminal 8. Those, those are building blocks that are in place. What's underway is really an astonishingly aggressive investment uh, program, which over the next four to six years will see $15 billion worth of construction at Kennedy. Two major new international terminals and we are going to take on a total redo of the roadway network and network and infrastructure. So our target is to have Kennedy rank as truly one of the great airports with comparison to the best international terminals. I can't tell you how many times people have come back from traveling abroad and will point to one of the Asian airports or one of the European airports and say, how how can the New York, New Jersey region airports uh, not compare to the best in the world? Well, we want to bring that era to an end. So the Kennedy projects uh, will open in two phases, uh, one, both the new terminals. Phase one will be completed in 2026, and the full terminals will be completed in 2028. The roadway networks will be timed to coincide with uh, with those terminal openings. There's going to be an enormous amount of construction. so of have to apologize to people for the inconvenience. Uh, there'll be lots of temporary roadways, lots of of work going on out there. But that's the time frame for uh, for Kennedy and. Uh, You won't recognize (laughs) (laughs) Canada once we're we're done. Uh, Newark has multiple stages as well. Really proud of the new Terminal A. I think it's stunning. It gets huge compliments for people who go through it. We're looking now at the next stage will be a brand new uh, Newark Air Train, which is way past its design life. And that is now fully underway in terms of design and and procurement and should come online in the next five years or so. And then the, the the challenge again that we're in the middle of design is a vision plan for the entire airport, meaning uh, terminal B and terminal C. And we want to press that forward as as rapidly as we can, although there's not a precise timeline at this point. But it will there will be a brand new soup to nuts Newark airport. We are committed to that.
1: So Rick, with JFK Terminal 4 being built by Schiphol, are you worried you'll build this beautiful place then they won't let anyone fly there? <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, the answers were we're not worried about that. I, I think you look at uh, air travel, look, there are lots of, lots of challenges, the geopolitical uh, world in which we live is is full of its own sets of challenges, but the fact is, I mean, if you just take this next uh, Thanksgiving weekend, if you take this entire year, the volume at our airports are dramatically up from 2019. So we have uh, we're back not just to pre-COVID levels, but we're above pre-COVID levels, and our projection, obviously full of lots of uncertainties, but uh, all the trends are that that is big picture going to continue over the long term.
1: That's awesome. Now, we've had some listeners, while talking wonderfully about Terminal A at Newark, complain that the current air train doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. Are you saying the new one will?
2: short answer yes Ben uh, that. <laughs> it will it will go directly it will have a station if you've been out there there is a uh, currently a walkway that connects the um, uh, the new terminal directly to the brand new parking garage and centralized rental car facility, the new air train station will connect directly to that walkway. It will be very close to the new terminal A. So with apologies to travelers who, uh, who find that a long walk, we put, by the way, we put in a shuttle service so that people can uh, get rides uh, if they want them or need them. But uh, as soon as the new air train goes into, into service, uh, the new air train station will be adjacent to new Terminal A.
0: So what have you learned about airports that might be interesting to our audience of airline folks and travelers?
2: Well, <laughs> they are uh, they are certainly their own worlds. Our aviation department, uh, the people who run the airports, uh, speak of them as communities. And what you learn is the complexity <laughs> of Uh, of running an airport, it's almost a necessity to think about it as a community because there's so many different organizations, there's so many different employers that in order to get things done and uh, the entire operation of the airport depends on these interrelationships. So I'm certainly not telling anyone who has been uh, involved in managing an airport anything new, but it was interesting to me, one of my early introductions to the running an airport was a winter storm called Winter Storm Grayson, which struck uh, about three months after I had come to the Port Authority. And it was uh, pretty close to a meltdown at, uh, at JFK in particular. And you, in terms of trying to sort that out and trying to think through how to prevent it from ever happening again, you had to go through every single part of the airport operation. And it was certainly a lesson in, in complexity. So I would make that as the, uh, as the framework so that when you think about passenger experience, you think about wanting people to actually uh, think of the airport itself as part of the journey and have positive feelings about it. You have to be talking to, uh, not just to the designers, but all parts of the, of the operation, training people, working with the government partners, uh, Customs and Border Protection, uh, TSA. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the, the complexity of the challenge. I, I guess what I say was my, my introduction to, uh, to the airline and mm-hmm. airport business.
1: Rick, this has been amazing. You've been an exceptional leader for this. I would think at the highest levels of government, they should look to you as a guy who can solve big problems because you've knocked this one out of the park.
2: Well, Ben, I appreciate the. Appreciate the comment. I continue to say uh, the job is pushing boulders uphill and dodging bullets. Hmm. And I'm glad to say that at the, at the moment at least, I'm still standing.
1: Well, and while you're still standing, what's next for you? Or do you just sit back and watch the wonderful airport you've
2: rebuilt? Well, uh, there's no sitting back, <laughs> I guess is what I would say. LaGuardia may be essentially done, still lots of little pieces, uh, but the big challenges are Kennedy, where the, the, it is a monster construction project. Uh, we have two private partners who are the sponsors and on the front lines in terms of building these two new international terminals, We've taken on the, uh, uh, the infrastructure construction that I, uh, that I mentioned. Orchestrating all that is a huge challenge and uh, getting the next phase of, of Newark launching, particularly the construction of the, of the new air train, which is right in front of us, and then ha- pushing forward the vision plan for the rest of Newark, I would say, Ben, that will keep me off the streets for a while. <laughs>
0: Well, congratulations on it all, Rick. Um, I know you've got a lot of work still to do, but, um, uh, but on behalf of uh, travelers and airline people and, and uh, all of us, thank you. Thank you for, for making this uh, go so well and, uh, and end up with spectacular results that we're benefiting from all the time. Really, Really, hats off to you. Congratulations. Job well done.
2: Well, thank you for the kind words. We'll keep at it.
0: And we'll be right back with more on Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration provided by the archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of Geek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history and you're welcome aboard the archive.net. In the mailbag, Ben, we heard from JP from Chicago. This question is for Professor Baldanza. When I shop around for gas, I'm always looking for the lowest price per gallon. Do airlines have the same luxury or is jet fuel more or less the same everywhere? Is it cheaper in one region than another? Does it go up or down depending on what country the carrier calls home? I'm always fascinated how Delta is able to consistently pay less for jet fuel because of their refinery in Philadelphia. Please provide some insight into this critical commodity and big expense.
1: It's a great question, JP, and a lot goes into this. One big difference versus driving is a pilot can't look at a sign and say, hey, BP is two cents less than Shell. I'll go up a block. They don't have that ability Planes are fueled for every flight, and they have to fuel up where they are. Carrying extra fuel is very expensive because fuel is really heavy. The more you carry, the more you burn. So airlines tend to deal with the price they get at each airport. That said, there are some differences based on geography. In the Gulf Coast, it's usually a little cheaper than in the Northeast, for example. And that's just because of the number of refineries, the access to shipping and other things. In general, Airlines are a price taker on the price of fuel, but they get very active on being good users of fuel. Most airlines train their pilots, for example, to taxi with only one engine, and they don't turn the second engine on until they're ready for takeoff. There's been a lot of effort in the dispatchers to better manage the amount of fuel put into planes so you have enough to complete the trip and deal with problems that may happen but not have too much left when you land. So it's a real interesting part of the business. But when it comes... To the price the airlines pretty much have to pay the price where the plane is since they have to fuel up for every flight they take
0: It's interesting Ben the the one place where there are differences um, are in the commodity markets so airlines can uh, hedge the price of fuel generally by, Buying contracts uh, for for fuel, or or shorting the price of fuel, or using different instruments in commodity markets, it doesn't show up at the at the pump, but it does show up in the income statement. And so uh, sometimes you see airlines have made a bet on fuel prices that pays off. Sometimes they're paying more overall for fuel because they made an incorrect bet uh, that went against them. And and one of the great Examples in aviation history was when Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines, um, before the first Gulf War, thought, "Hmm, uh, war in the Gulf is not going to be good for for oil prices, so jet fuels probably going to go up." So he bought as much fuel as he could through contracts out ten years. And those contracts paid off richly and Southwest effectively was paying less for its fuel. Even though it paid the same price at the airport, it effectively was paying less for the fuel than competitors and had a great advantage over the rest of the industry for those 10 years. Um, So there there are all kinds of different things. Uh, Delta with the refinery had tried to hedge that way. Um, I, I think I'm not sure Delta's all that happy with it. Uh, I think they've, you know, they've, now you're in the oil business, and and sometimes refineries lose money, and that's a that could be a big drag uh, on the company. And sometimes it works out really well.
1: You know, the only other thing we haven't mentioned yet, and again, thank you, JP, is you mentioned by country the biggest thing that drives. Fuel price differences by country is whether that country's a producer or importer of fuel and the taxes they put on the fuel. So fuel can be very different by country based on those things. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and one other thing I always loved... When you're a general aviation pilot and you're flying into little airports, sometimes there is a price difference available to you. Uh, generally, the fixed-based operator or the uh, the local uh, town airport manager, um, they'll have one price for fuel. Uh, and then there may be a self-service fuel pump somewhere on the field. And I always loved that pilots could go fill up their own plane and save a few cents per gallon on self-service, much like gas station, right? Um, so, you know, maybe someday we'll see self-service uh, for for airlines.
1: <laughs> I don't know that I want my pilot. Yeah, <laughs> doing that. you know, my first flight instructor said to me when I was first learning to fly. That there are two things in life not worth a damn: runway behind you and fuel in the truck. Yeah, and, <laughs> and for airlines, they can't think that way about fueling their planes. However,
0: yeah, no, that's a it's always a tough issue and a tension sometimes between pilots and disasters. The pilot says, "You know what? I want more fuel on that flight." Uh, and uh, sometimes there's pushback at different airlines and sometimes uh, uh, airlines have give the, give the captain the ability to take the fuel that he or she feels like he needs.
1: I even know of some airlines, not in the US, that have posted the amount of landed fuel by pilots. And they show the ones that land with way too much fuel Wow! they add too much.
0: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. I don't (laughs) think
1: anyone in this country would get away with that.
0: Well, it's a question of whether the pilots would be proud to be high on the list or embarrassed to be high on the list.
2: That's right.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks to Rick Cotton and thanks to everyone for listening. Have a safe and happy Thanksgiving.
1: So long, everybody. Be safe this Thanksgiving. This
2: podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.